I want to invite you to stand with me and let's read our scripture together this morning. Acts 21, 1 through 16. As always, I want to just encourage you, you can pronounce these words that are, are unfamiliar to you in any way you choose. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, for those of you who may be visiting among us today, we're in a series through this book, the New Testament book called The Acts of the Apostles, with the title Turning the World Upside Down. And we have been in this now for, this is message 58, so we've been we've been in this for over a year. We're going to finish this the end of June, Lord willing, and... And if he comes before that, then all, all, all the better, right? Um, but I hope this has been a helpful series to you. It's been amazing for me and my preparation just to study these things and learn from these passages. Uh, with Paul's arrival back in Caesarea, he ends officially his what's known as his third missionary journey. And so just a little mile marker there for us as we understand... Um, what Paul was all about on his mission. I've titled this uh, first section of this passage, verses 1 to 3, Untied for one simple reason, because I needed an un, and because Paul and company are boarding yet another ship and untying from the dock. What we have in, in these first three verses is another of Luke's travelogues in which he makes note of some of the details of Paul's 
journeys, where he's the specific places where uh, where he went, and and even in this case, how he uh, approached um, from the sea at particular um, land masses. So allow me just to read verses one to three again for us. When we had parted from them and set sail. Um, and them being the Ephesian elders, remember in, in Miletus, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and then from there to Patera, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. I got a lesson this week from a sermon on YouTube, YouTube on how not to teach this passage of scripture. Uh, the pastor went into to great detail about the the type and the size of the vessels, even measurements uh, on which Paul and company would have traveled as they made their way from Miletus to Patera, and then from Patera to Tyre. It was incredibly boring, you know. And some of you may be saying, "That's nothing. You you've barely started, and I'm already bored." So I don't know how to help you with that this morning, but. Um, let me make this simple. Traveling to and between the three places mentioned in verse 1, which are Co- Coast, Roads, and Patera, Paul and company would have been in small coastal vessels as they made their way along the western coastline of what is modern-day Turkey, uh, out of the Aegean Sea, uh, and into the Mediterranean. From Patera to Tyre, they crossed the Mediterranean. They were on open sea, so they would have necessity have been aboard a large merchant ship that could handle those conditions. Is that enough for you? So hugging the coastline, small vessels, crossing the sea, large vessel. If it's not enough, I'm sorry, go home and Google it. <laughs> what I'm again impressed with as I read these kinds of sections, and particularly this one, is is that beyond simply helping us to understand where Paul and his team were, uh, the details that Luke provides remind us again uh, that these stories involve real people, in real places, facing real human circumstances, dealing with real dilemmas, experiencing real pathos, real human emotion. There's there's a simple air of authenticity about Luke's telling of these stories, isn't there? Uh, for one simple reason, that they describe events that actually happened in history, in space and time. So compare it to, for example, to the literature of any of uh, several other major religions, <clears throat> thinking particularly of Mormonism today and, and the fantasy places for which no archaeological evidence has ever even been found. The contrast is self-evident. Arriving finally then on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, they, they landed first at Tyre, or um, would have been pronounced Turos, the, the capital city of Phoenicia, where they spent seven days. Why seven days? Luke doesn't tell us may simply have been that, that it took seven days to unload whatever cargo the ship they traveled in was carrying, and then to reload with new cargo before sailing on to the next harbor. Again, we, we simply don't know. Um, and, and by the way, there, there weren't any kind of, you know, princess cruise lines or, you know, those kinds of things. Even, even Viking wasn't invented yet. And so... Um, they're, they're just catching passage on whatever boat they could persuade the captain to let them come aboard of, you know. And and what does stand out here in verses 4 to 6 to me is Luke's description of the reception that they received from the disciples there in the city of Tyre 
who welcomed them warmly, but who were somewhat uh, undiscerning. Undiscerning, verses 4 to 6, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Make a note of that in your Bible. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. I was thinking as I was preparing this message, this little memory came to mind. In Acts eleven nineteen, Luke wrote that now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia. Where was Tyre? It was in Phoenicia. It was the capital city. Who supported and you know, uh, initiated, fomented, gave approval to, financed, participated in that persecution. Uh, who had a great deal of experience at seeking out and finding enclaves of Christians in far-flung places? Paul, of course. Uh, and, and though Paul was not acquainted, it seems, with this particular church in the city of Tyre, it, it was most likely started by Christians who years earlier had fled Paul's persecution. So their persecutor that put them where they are is now visiting them. Isn't kind of an interesting turnaround, isn't it? Years later. And I said that these disciples were undiscerning. What, what did I mean by that? In the latter part of verse 4, Luke tells us that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Just, just uh, if you have your own Bible and you can write in it, go ahead and write in it. Make a note of that. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So we're faced here with uh, something of an interpretive challenge. And you'll recall, I hope that that in Paul's address to the the Ephesian elders in Acts twenty, verses twenty two to twenty four, which we we saw just recently, he said, "And now behold." I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So we made note of this before, but just let's just recall this, that, that the Holy Spirit, who kept telling Paul that imprisonments and afflictions awaited him in Jerusalem, is the same Holy Spirit whom Paul very plainly stated, nevertheless, was compelling him to go to Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit saying, imprisonment and suffering awaits you, Hard stuff, but keep on going. Keep on going. That's your destination. And yet, it would would seem at first glance, at least, that the disciples here in Tyre also claimed inspiration of the Spirit as they were pleading with Paul over and over again, it says in, in the Greek language, not to go to Jerusalem, not to go. 
Was the Spirit using this band of disciples entire to redirect Paul? Was uh, was the Spirit saying, well, cancel the previous order, I've changed my mind? Um, if if that were true, in that case, would, would Paul's determination to proceed to Jerusalem be disobedience to the Spirit of God? Or did Paul doubt their spiritual discernment? How are we to resolve what seems like a contradiction in the text? Let's look again at the latter half of verse 4. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Is there another way of understanding what we're reading here? Is it possible that the preposition through indicates that the Spirit's message was the the primary occasion for the believer's concern. That is, the Spirit was saying to them, imprisonment and suffering are Paul's destiny if he goes to Jerusalem, rather than their efforts to prevail upon Paul. Could it be that they received from the Spirit then that same message that Paul had received and they simply responded to it differently? That they were responding in fear while Paul was responding in faith. Paul wrote to Timothy and said that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power and of love, and of a sound mind. Notice the two effects that fear was having on the disciples' entire. First, their affection for Paul was combining with their fear for his future, and not in a good way. They allowed their fear to prompt them to try to persuade him to preempt his plan and purpose to proceed to Jerusalem. Secondly, Their fear caused them to conflate the Spirit's revelation of Paul's future with their own human wisdom. How often do we do that? Well, the Spirit's saying that Paul's going to suffer if he goes to Jerusalem, therefore it can't be the will of God for Paul to go to Jerusalem. They interpreted what they heard from the Spirit not just as a reason to pray for Paul and to encourage him, but as a a warning that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem at all. Uh, How often are we guilty of both of these things? Discouraging others who feel led by the Spirit to attempt risky things for God simply because we fear for their safety. We fear for their well-being or or labeling our own wisdom, our own limited perspective as the voice of the Spirit so as to influence others to our own ends. You know, um, whenever I hear a Christian say, well, the Lord's really put it on my heart, I, I, I tense up a little bit, you know, because I'm waiting for what's next. The Lord's really put this on my heart. Or, or I really feel led of the Spirit, and I'm going, okay, let's compare whatever you're about to say over against Scripture, over against the revealed will of God. See, the Old Testament issues a very stern warning about, um, against saying, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken. You and I should never seek to speak for God when we have not received a word from God. 
But that is, it seems to me, what was happening here in Tyre. Uh, not questioning their affection for Paul, their love for him, their esteem of him. Um, but, but again, undiscerning. Do you remember the, the sting interchange between Jesus and Peter in Matthew 16, uh, 21 to 23? Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I just can't help believing that this is exactly what was happening there in Tyre. In verses 7 to 11, we encounter someone and something quite unusual. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters uh, who prophesied, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So uh, Ptolemais was also a Phoenician city. Today it's known as Akko. It's located on the northern coast of Israel, just south of the border with Lebanon, it seems to be where Paul's sea journey came to an end. They, they must have traveled from Ptolemais by land and then southward to Caesarea, that, that magnificent, magnificent city built by Herod the Great, which served as the port city for Jerusalem. And, and there in Caesarea, they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, <clears throat> uh, so-called uh, to distinguish him from the Philip who was one of the twelve apostles. This Philip... Um, this is the Philip who, along with Stephen, had been one of the seven in the church of Jerusalem, the, the seven men of uh, good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, it says, who in Acts 6 were selected and appointed by the church in Jerusalem to administer the dis- distribution of food to the Jewish and Greek widows in the church. And you may recall from our earlier studies that following his evangelism of that unnamed city in Samaria and then leading that Ethiopian eunuch to faith in Christ using the book of Isaiah the prophet, um, baptizing him. Luke informs us in chapter 8, verses 39 to 40, that the Spirit of the Lord then carried Philip away. And and it's, it's such an interesting little moment because it's, he the sense is that he was teleported from wherever he was, to the city of Azotus, which is uh, the modern-day city of Ashdod on the southern coast of Israel. And and from there, going northward, then he, uh, on foot, he preached the gospel in every town along the way until he came, it says, to Caesarea. Whether at that time or later on he had settled there, raised a family, and now had these four young teenage daughters, each of whom exercised the gift of prophecy. What would that be like, right? 
hard enough having daughter or just daughters in your home, right? And then all of them prophesying. Whew. Seems rough. Seems like a rough deal to me. The <clears throat> the historian Eusebius recorded that these daughters, these four daughters, were major contributors to the compilation of the history of the early church, and so they would have been um, primary sources for Luke as he wrote. Um, both his gospel and, and the book of Acts. While they were there in Caesarea, another guy we met earlier in Acts showed up at Philip's place. His name was Agabus. He also exercised the spiritual gift of prophecy. And, and as we read, he took that belt, Paul's belt, not a piece of leather, but a long, long strip of cloth um, <clears throat> that was used for tying together a man's clothing. And, and with that belt, he bound his own feet and hands. And having done that, he said, this is what the Holy Spirit has spoken. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and turn him over to the Romans. And at that moment, Paul said, well, that's not my belt, that's Luke's. No, he didn't say that. <clears throat> in expressing uh, the message, his message in this way, Agabus is, is really taking his place in a, a long line of Old Testament prophets who delivered their prophecies in the form of a mime, or sometimes it's called prophetic drama or acted prophecy. The, this practice seems very strange, even bizarre to us, doesn't it? No. But consider, and you might just write down these texts if you're interested in pursuing them, uh, the prophet Ahijah uh, tearing Jeroboam's cloak into 12 pieces in 1 Kings 11. Uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 20, going naked and barefoot for three years uh, at the direction of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah uh, hiding his loincloth in the cleft of a rock, Jeremiah 13. Uh, and then uh, the, the one that seems the, the weirdest to me, Ezekiel 4, Ezekiel laying siege to a drawing of Jerusalem. How do you lay siege to a drawing? I'm not sure about that, but, but then he laid on his side for over a year. Just, just imagine that. So prophetic drama, acted prophecy, Agabus' delivery of his prophetic message here was was. Dramatic, yes. Memorable, yes. But we might ask, what really, in the final analysis, had he said? And I would submit to you that it was nothing new. Only what the Spirit had already been saying to Paul everywhere he went. That that he would experience imprisonment and afflictions when he went to Jerusalem. Through Agabus, the Spirit of God was, seems to me, only reiterating the prophecy to a new audience. And that audience also proved to be unwilling. Verse 12, chapter 21, verse 12, when we heard this, we, Luke is including himself, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So, so notice with me who joins the opposition on this occasion. It, everyone who was there. Every, everyone. The whole house full of people, including Paul's own traveling companions. Philip and his four daughters, maybe even Agabus himself. And how odd is it that these, whom we might have expected would possess a deeper faith, uh, a more seasoned 
perspective, a, a greater sensitivity to the leading of the Spirit than most others, would be among those who would seek to dissuade Paul from fulfilling the appointment that the Spirit had prepared for him and toward which the Spirit was compelling him. And I think the words of Jesus to Peter ring true again here. You are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. What do you think? Do you think these people loved and respected and admired Paul? Do you think the very thought of him journeying to his death was a bitter pill for them to swallow? Yeah, I do too. I do too. Whenever any of our spiritual heroes, men or women whom God has used to shape our personal growth in Christ, either suffers or dies, it's a hard message to receive. And perhaps we, we don't, we who don't think of ourselves as spiritual heroes, per se, should, should take encouragement from the realization that even those whom we think of as people of great faith and spirituality can, at times, be short-sighted, can give advice, can make decisions motivated only by human emotion rather than the Spirit of God and His Word. So even people who love you, may try to shield you from risky, costly obedience. Uh, Even people who love you may seek to dissuade you from really taking up your cross and following Jesus into places of radical obedience. I think we ought to take life in Christian community very seriously. Uh, I think we ought to listen to uh, the counsel of those who love us within the body of Christ. We, we ought to seek the counsel of men and women who possess mature faith. Uh, I think that we should apply to our own lives and our own decision-making the biblical proverb that says, without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. There, there's safety in, in a multitude of counselors. And yet there are also times when the majority, uh, even the most mature, those who love us best, will offer counsel and take stands that must, in the final analysis, be rejected. Why? Because they are rooted not in faith, but in fear or in lesser motives. It's an interesting thing that... uh, in the Bible, the majority is usually wrong. Usually wrong. It would seem that there was only one person in the room that day who was unpersuaded. Chapter 21, verses 13 to 16, Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So what are you doing? Paul asked them. Weeping, breaking my heart. Think with me about that question because it's one of the keys, maybe the major key to understanding Paul's mindset 
in in his response to the urgings of his new friends in Caesarea and those of his own colleagues. And there is first the the relational, the emotional dimension of impending separation and tragedy. The scene here in Caesarea really kind of echoes the one we saw in Militas, doesn't it? That emotional scene that, as Paul said, his final farewell to the Ephesian elders, they they were hugging each other, they were kissing each other, they were weeping, they were a mess. Um, why? Because there was, there was the shared realization that the decision to proceed on to Jerusalem was fraught with danger. That the, the many promptings of the Holy Spirit, punctuated by the prophecy through Agabus, pointed to nothing but peril. Nothing but danger. Secondly, a, a better translation of, of the thrust of verse 13 is offered by the New English Bible that renders it this way. What are you doing weeping and trying to weaken my resolution? What are you doing weeping and trying to weaken my resolution? What's Paul asking? He's, he's asking why it would be the genuine followers of Jesus Christ would attempt to diminish his determination to do what the Lord Jesus had personally called him to do years before. He's attempting to communicate to them that their tears, their emotional pleas, were having the effect of crushing his courage to complete his calling. You remember that that when Saul, who later became Paul, changed his name to Paul, met met Jesus uh, that day on the road to Damascus. He was blinded and had to be led by others into the city. You remember that? And you remember that that following his conversion, the Lord spoke to a man named Ananias, told him to go and lay his hands on Saul so that he could regain his sight, his, his vision. Ananias objected out of fear, but the Lord said to him, Go. Listen now, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my, for the sake of my name. In the third chapter of his letter to the Philippians, after laying out his pure Jewish pedigree and his remarkable religious resume, Paul expressed his newfound purpose in life in these words. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and listen and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul was able to say to those gathered in Philip's house in Caesarea, what are you doing? Weeping, breaking my heart, diminishing my determination, crushing my courage, 
For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's resolution reverberates from God's redemptive agenda for the world in Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7. There's this prophecy regarding the promised Messiah. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. You see, his prophecy, of course, is, is fulfilled in Messiah Jesus. And Luke writes of Jesus in chapter 9 of his gospel, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set to go to Jerusalem. Only Paul and all of the people there in the room would not be persuaded. He he stood his ground in faith and obedience. Like Jesus, he set his own face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And so at the last, his friends kind of gave up and, and just released him then to the will of the Lord. Luke continues in verses 14 to 15, And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Yeah, may, may that describe us, that we would set our face like a flint, that we would set our faces resolutely to fulfill the thing that God has called us to be and to do in our lives. There's one more lesson to be learned here in today's text, and, and that is that the Holy Spirit is undivided, undivided. Each of us as believers needs to come to understand who the Holy Spirit is, what he's about, um, how he speaks when he speaks. And I think there seems to be a great deal of confusion in the Christian church today on this topic. And, And I just want to make four kind of bullet points very briefly. First, the Holy Spirit is God. He is not less than God. He's not subordinate to God. He is God. When he speaks, he speaks from his authority as God, and we are to respond accordingly. He's not a lesser God. He's not a demigod. He's he's one of the three persons of the triune God. Second, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. So the Spirit never deals in falsehood. He never deals in confusion. Heaven and earth will pass away. The word of the Lord will never pass away. When the Spirit spoke in ancient times, uh, and what he spoke then is as true today as it was then. never changes. Third, the Holy Spirit is not schizophrenic. Isn't that good news? He doesn't suffer from multiple personality disorder. He never contradicts himself. If we perceive contradiction, it's we, not he, who need to dig deeper into the Spirit-breathed Word of God to gain clarity. Fourth, neither is the Holy Spirit a relativist. The Holy Spirit doesn't allow you to have your personal truth that's different from or contradictory 
to his truth or anyone else's. Truth is truth. I know that's that's a hard thing in our time for people to get their minds around. Truth is truth. James wrote that with him, that is with God, there is no variation or shifting shadow. See, what we find here in the the 21st chapter of Acts is that the Spirit spoke clearly with a single message to Paul, to those disciples in the city of Tyre, through Agabus, to Paul's own team. None of them liked what they heard from the Spirit. They didn't like it. We wouldn't like it. They wouldn't say, hey, praise God. They'd say, oh, wow. None of them liked what they heard from the Spirit. Oh, well. Oh, well. It was still true. It was still true. Obedience was still required. The the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let God be true and every man a liar. See, God calls each of us and all of us to know his will, to trust his will, to do his will, whatever the cost. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. Get used to it. You won't live your best life now as one of our contemporary false prophets says. You won't. But Jesus said, But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. A a biblical Christian worldview calls us to ask not, Why does suffering happen to me? But, But rather, knowing that suffering will be part of following Jesus, how will I glorify him and advance the message of the gospel? in the midst of suffering and through my suffering for the sake of his name. The Apostle Peter wrote, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See, the cross is a non-negotiable prerequisite of discipleship. When you take up your cross in obedience to the call of God, when you, when you choose a path for the sake of His name that calls you to, to radical, risky obedience, don't expect your Christian family or your Christian friends to understand or appreciate the path that you are taking. They may even oppose you. Not because they consciously reject the will of God, but because in their misplaced love they want to help you to avoid pain. And on those occasions it will be on you to provide an explanation from God's Word as to why you are choosing the path that you're choosing and and help them to understand. And those who respect the will of God, I, I think at that point, will relent from their opposition since they don't want to oppose God. And, and, and I think this is what happened in Caesarea when the believers finally said, the Lord's will be done, and they went on up to Jerusalem. One last thing. I want to direct this to you who are parents or custodial grandparents. If your child has made the decision in his or her life to follow Jesus, Jesus may call them to places of radical obedience. He may call them to places of 
risky faith. He may call them to places of significant sacrifice. Here's our question as Christian parents in the world today. Will you encourage them to obedience? Or will you discourage them? Will you say something like, oh, don't get get a little bit of religion, but not too much, not too much of that Jesus stuff? Will you encourage them instead to a a safer, more self-serving, more comfortable life? What are the values you're seeking to instill into their hearts and minds that will help them to choose obedience both now and later in life because of what you've built into them now? One of the musicians that contributed meaningfully to, to what I just call the soundtrack of my life is guy named Keith Green. And I want to leave you, parents and grandparents, with the lyrics of one verse of one of his songs that has just stood out to me over the years as a great challenge to me as a dad to my kids. And it says this, Well, I pledge my son to heaven. You can insert daughter if you'd like. Well, I I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. Though he's kicked and beaten, ridiculed and scorned, I will teach him to rejoice and lift a thankful, praising voice and to be like him who bore the nails and crown of thorns. May that be our prayer for our children and for each other as God calls us to places of risky obedience, radical faith, for the sake of his name. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for this passage, and thanks for the challenge that is here to test our reactions, our impulses, against the truth that you reveal, against the word of God, that, Lord, we would discern for ourselves and for others around us what it is to which you are actually calling them and how we then need to support them. Lord, may we too be those who respond readily, willingly, sacrificially, to the call of your spirit, even to small things of of serving in our homes and in our neighborhoods, in our church, and things that we we draw back from because we don't think that you can sustain us there. But Lord, you, we know from your word that over and over again, when you have called people to a place or a a mission, that you've always sustained them and you've always provided for them. Lord, we, uh, we know that uh, this world is going to be filled with trouble, and it seems like the trouble is increasing. And yet you've called us to live for you in the midst of this. And we know that, that the world in which the gospel took root was also a world that was facing lots of trouble. So, Lord, lift up our hearts, lift up our eyes to see the harvest, to see uh, the things that you're calling us to. And, Lord, help us not to shrink back but uh, to step forward and to encourage each other, pray for each other, cheer for each other as we do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.